morning, Bethel family. Good to see you all. And um, it's kind of cold in here this morning, isn't it? Thanks for that, Captain Obvious. Um, didn't need your help with that. So we are aware of that. This new HVAC system has yet to be tested for heat, so it just failed. Um, but I'm sure by next Sunday, um, we'll have a passing grade. So anyway, maybe it's appropriate on the morning that we're looking at, you know, the Tower of Babel, not to trust in human ingenuity. It's kind of like a living illustration. So anyway, all right. Um, so we are going to be looking at Genesis 11 this morning. So if you are visiting or if you um, haven't been with us for a few weeks, um, we're going through the book of Genesis um, section by section. And there are going to be some times where we pass over some sections that are um, not less inspired, but maybe not as um, uh, application laden, like chapter 10. So I'll allude to chapter 10, but it's by and large a, um, a genealogy. So we're going to leave that be this week and focus on chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Okay, so if you uh, using the Pew Bible, pretty easy to find. It's on page 8. Um, so before we dive into the text, I want to I just get you thinking a little bit and ask yourself these questions. Ask them honestly, like really think about your life in this regard. Where does your sense of security come from? So think of the last month. Think of the last year. Where does your sense of security come from? Does it come from your health? Does it come from the, the economy, the government, your job, your financial situation, your 401ks, performance, the security system in your home? Have you noticed your sense of security kind of rising and falling in certain weeks at different times? What does it ride and fall on? If we ask the question the other way, what really upsets your sense of security? Threats to your health, a shaky economy, governmental instability, the news, like just listening to the news, does that just totally shake your sense of security? Your job security, your company's stability, again, your financial situation, debt, whatever. So I'm asking because it sets up our text here as far as one of the major issues in this text um, because... The issue, one of the issues before us here in this passage is that God alone is our only true source of security. And he wants to be our rock and our refuge and our life and our protector and our provider, the one in whom we trust so that our security is not fragile, but ra rather rock solid. Okay? So we are spring-loaded to locate our security in the wrong place. And God loves us too much to let us build our lives on the shifting sand of worldly security. Okay, so that's one of the key lessons of the Tower of Babel. So be thinking about your own life because we want to make sure that we're intersecting 
our lives with, um, with the text. So in order to really see and appreciate what's going on in Genesis 11, we're going to start back a little bit further, all the way at the beginning actually in chapter 1, to remind ourselves of God's original intention. Okay, So even if you have been here all along, you need to, to know that this ought to be in mind when we get to chapter 11. So look back at chapter 1. This is point number one, the outline, if you're using that in the pew or in the uh, bulletin or it'll be up on the slide. So the original intention in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Look at that with me. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that was the original intention, to fill the earth, rule and subdue it. Why? Because the glory of God was intended to be spread through the whole earth. He made us in his image, as his image bearers. He blessed our first parents. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth so that they would represent him, reflect him, reflect his glory throughout the whole earth. So you can imagine like little points of light in the Garden of Eden and you're fruitful and you multiply and the light just spreads and fills the earth. So that was obviously the original intent because the whole earth belongs to God. The whole earth is his temple. He was dwelling with Adam and Eve, right? And he wanted to dwell with his people. So the whole earth filled with his blessed image bearers, shining with his light, shining with his love, reflecting his love, his wisdom, his provision, his care, his creativity. So the whole earth flourishing under his kingship with us, his image bearers, reigning as his vice regents in his strength for his glory and for the good of all. That was the original intention. So Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So he made it all. It's all for his glory. So God's plan was to bless and fill the whole earth, cause the whole earth to flourish. But, obviously, the fall happens, sin, rebellion, and then strife and violence. Cain and Abel, we looked at that a few, few weeks ago. Lamech, it gets worse, and then the total depravity just filling the whole known world at the time, leading to the flood where God washes his world clean. We looked at that last week, verse chapter 6 to 9, and he starts over with Noah and his family. Again in chapter 9, verses 1 and 7, look at them, just flip back a page. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So again, the intention is, I want this whole earth filled with my glory. 
and I'm going to start over with you, Noah. But Noah was a sinner, right? That was that unsavory story at the end of chapter 9. So sadly, the infection of sin was not washed away from the human heart by the flood. So as humanity increased, so did sin, which leads us to point number two and into our text for this morning, chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. And we see selfish ambition, we see self-sufficiency going on here in Genesis 11. All right, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Let us make. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Sounds creator-like, doesn't it? From chapter 1, let us make. So is this good, image-bearing, you know, in his image, reflecting the glory of God, making? Or is this self-sufficient, we'll be the creator's, thank you, building? Let's read on. Look at verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So, again, this is a storyline and it's building. We should, we should be reminded of where we've been here. The line of Cain was strong and independent of God. Right? Cain's selfish violence led to him being sent even further east, and he built a city away from the Lord. Okay? And then we read about the development of technology, and Yahweh's nowhere in the picture. The picture is being painted of human ingenuity and independence from God. So the trajectory keeps going bad to worse, the spread of sin from individual to family to society to culture. And the seventh generation, we meet Lamech, who's the world's first narcissist, and he embodies this hellish trajectory, right? Lamech's family, like, like I said, all kinds of development, animal husbandry, the arts, technology, which in and of itself is good, wonderfully good, but in the context of chapter 4, it's all in the service of his godless self-sufficiency. And he's this stone-cold killer, so he's bragging to his wives, saying, nobody messes with Lamech and gets away with it. So the whole point is there's this trajectory of people are moving in the direction of self-sufficiency, independence. We don't need God. Not a good trajectory. Very dangerous trajectory. It's the weak who are the ones who are calling upon the name of the Lord. So you have this two cities, a tale of two cities, you know, city of man, city of God, one based on power and self-sufficiency, one based on God's sufficiency, his provision and his grace. Then chapter 10, we read of Ham's descendants. Look at verse 6 of chapter 10. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. That's like the who's who of the enemies of God. Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. You may have used that as a 
you know, a name, like calling somebody a name in elementary school. Did you know it came from the Bible? Okay, so Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, which actually, if you see this thing in context, is probably a sarcastic. This is not a compliment. Okay? He's independent before the Lord. No, actually, he's not relying on the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, all these cities that were known later on as anti-God. So Nimrod's kingdom is clearly in opposition to the kingdom of God. So you see how the Tower of Babel just fits into this trajectory, this storyline. So why are they doing this thing in the Valley of Shinar? Verse 4, 11, 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So there's two reasons, right? You see them? Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. One, to make a name for ourselves. And two, so that we won't be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Or you could say, for two reasons, selfish ambition and two, self-sufficiency or security. They're fortifying themselves. They don't want to have to be spread out and trust the Lord to be established and to establish the whole earth. So the tower is like a monument to human autonomy, independence, self-sufficiency, selfish ambition. And they're seeking their own security. They're determining their destiny without reference to God, as if they have no need of Him. Okay, so they're trusting their technology, their own abilities, their communal unity for the sake of their own security and glory. Nothing new under the sun. Sounds like Silicon Valley, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's also here, too. It's in Wilmington. It's in every heart. So they're seeking greatness by, the pow by their own power and skill, not by gods. They're seeking their, their ends by their means, even though God gave them the means, the creativity and strength and all of that, but they're using it for their own purposes rather than God's glory. So Derek Kidner writes this. He says, the primeval history reaches its fruitless climax as man, conscious of new abilities, prepares to glorify and fortify himself by collective effort. The elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. The project is typically grandiose, very much as modern man glories in his space projects. Just think about how many people are like all caught up in getting to Mars. At the same time, they betray their insecurity as they crowd together to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. The narrative captures the simultaneous absurdity and gravity of it. So, with that trajectory, moving away from God, what's God going to do? He's going to come down and act. Point number three, judgment and dispersion. Look at verses five to nine. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It's obviously not because God didn't know I think actually there's kind of a touch of irony or humor here. 
he had to come down to be able to see it. And I, I know that's obviously God's omniscient and he didn't need to do this. But the point is, Isaiah 66 says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Okay, this grand project of humanity. Oh, where was that tower again? Let me come down and see it. Because it's so small compared to how great God is. So verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So I read this to our kids last night, and one of them asked a question that I've certainly wondered about in the past. Has this ever bothered you? Has it ever sounded like God's kind of threatened in this verse? Like a little nervous, like, oh, what are they going to do? Anybody? Well, anybody ever? I mean, it just seems that way, doesn't it? Instead of hearing an echo of nervousness in God, we should actually hear an echo of something we heard a few chapters earlier. Flip back to chapter 3, verse 22. So after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, God barred the way. Is that because, oh, then, then you might challenge me? No, that was actually merciful, wasn't it? So you see the language is very similar. Behold, and then God acts. This is what's happened. God acts to prevent something. Well, he was putting the cherubim and barring the way because it would be terrible for us in our fallen state to live forever. Right? So here, behold, they are one people. They have one, one, all one language. This is the only beginning of what they would do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I'm going to act because it would be terrible to leave them on this trajectory of self-sufficiency and independence for me. I love them too much not to act. So he's not threatened as if we could ever threaten God. And so he comes down and acts. Look at verse 7. Come, let us go down there. Let's, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So Babel, it links it, it's linked to this, this verb to confuse, Balal, okay, to mix, to confuse. So Babel is, is actually the name for Babylon, okay? The kingdom, the city that becomes symbolic of like the city of man, the world in all of its God-denying fallenness. So Babel here ends up getting picked up. Babylon is a city there in the ancient Near East kingdom, and then it becomes like a symbol for the world and its fallenness, which is why in Revelation 17 and 18, you have fallen as Babylon. And the, the city, the new Jerusalem, is going to come down out of heaven, and God's kingdom is going to come in fullness. So, 
Babel is like a symbol for worldliness. So why did God come down and act? He came down and acted because of grace. We might think judgment. He was dealing with their self-sufficiency and independence, but this is actually a mercy. So humanity that's self-confident, self-sufficient, living for our own name, our own glory rather than God's, it's a danger to itself. We are a danger to ourselves if we live that way. So God comes down and acts. He confuses their language, scatters them in order ultimately to bless them. His original plan was good. And you know what? He's saying, I'm not going to let you thwart it. So two times, like, we've got to see how this is all a part of one grand story. Two times in the prophets, when there are threats to the kingdom of God coming, in fact, where the deepest threat is that the people of God are actually following the ways of the world rather than trusting him. But in these moments, God again states his original intention to fill the earth with his glory and that it's not going to be thwarted. It's a wonderful promise. So look, look first at Isaiah 11, and you'll see it there. If you're using that pew Bible, you can find it on page 575. God promises, even though Israel's been such a mess and he's had to judge them, he is prophesying of this day in the future when everything's going to be made new. And verse 9 says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to happen. You cannot stop it. You can't thwart my purpose. And then the other place where we see this same language is in Habakkuk. It's a little harder to find. Um, One of the minor prophets. And if you flip to page 786, Habakkuk 2, you can look there and see similar language. So Habakkuk 2.12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? That's, it's, it's an it's a exercise in futility if you're trying to establish, establish yourself apart from the Lord. So, verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is God's original intention. That is God's will. There's no stopping it. He is going to fulfill it. So God came down and acted mercifully, graciously, confusing their language, dispersing them through the earth. So should we just stop there, leave the story there and say, oh, hopefully it'll get better? No. Again, we see how this story fits into the grand story. So point number four, reversal and unification. Genesis is the beginning, right? of the story, the story, God's story, our story. All a unified whole. So listen to a really helpful little summary of how our little story starts to point to the real solution in the arc of the big storyline. So Tyler actually reminded me of the Tower of Babel account in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, If you want a good little story Bible for your kids, it's a good one by Sally Lloyd-Jones. 
Here's a little portion of it. It goes like this. One day, everyone was talking, and they came up with an idea. Let's build ourselves a beautiful city to live in. It can be our home, and we'll be safe forever and ever. Then they had another idea. And let's build a really tall tower to reach up to heaven. Yes, they said. We'll say, look at us up here, and everyone will look up at us, and we'll look down on them, and then we'll know we're something. We'll be like God. We'll be famous and safe and happy, and everything will be all right. So they got to work. Brick by brick, the tower grew higher and higher until it soared above the city, touching the sky. They built stairs in the tower to climb to the top. It was like a giant staircase to heaven. Look, they cheered. We're the ones. See what we can do with our very own hands. They were quite pleased with themselves, but God wasn't pleased with them. God could see what they were doing. They were trying to live without him. But God knew that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept on like this, they would only destroy themselves. And God loved them too much to let that happen. So he stopped their plans. After that, the people scattered all over the world, which is how we ended up with so many different languages to this day. You see, God knew however high they reached, however hard they tried, People could never get back to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase. They needed a rescuer because the way back to heaven wasn't a staircase. It was a person. People could never reach up to heaven, so heaven would have to come down to them. And one day, it would. So the one day is actually predicted. In the Old Testament, later on, it's one story, right? And there's hints. So I know we're going all over the place, but it's just to keep your fingers warm, you know, while we're in this cold room. So Isaiah 19, look at Isaiah 19, page 582, verse 18. It's kind of an interesting, kind of weird passage, but you'll see how it ties in. In that day... There will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Wait, Egypt? Like, they're the enemies of God. And they're going to speak the same language of the people of God in the promised land? And they're going to swear allegiance to Yahweh? Like, they're going to be believers? What's going on? There's another place where this one day in the future is predicted. Flip ahead to Zephaniah. kind of close to Habakkuk. So page 794 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. Zephaniah 3.9. And here's what God says. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a, a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Do you see the reversal? So God's going to act so that the speech of the nations will change to a pure speech, not polluted, unclean lips. But they're all going to call upon the name of the same God and be unified to serve him. God had to separate them, confuse their languages, and disunify them. And now he's going to reunify them, and they're all going to be 
speaking the same language as it were. So this beautiful reversal is happening. So how did all these prophecies get fulfilled? Well, where would you mind go next? Acts 2. What happened in Acts 2? Pentecost. So flip there to Acts 2. God came down and acted. The Son of God in between those prophecies in Acts 2, God came down ultimately and acted, right? We can't climb a ladder to heaven. We need a rescuer, and so we can't rely on our ingenuity or our technology or our economy or industry to save us or to secure us. Independence from God is the most dangerous thing in the world. Self-sufficiency is a total illusion. It's like cutting yourself off from spiritual oxygen, like trying to run a car without gas or a body without food. God would hate us to leave us alone in that place. So it's not just humanity in the land of Shinar. We've all tried to live this way, independent of God. We're, we've all been born dead in our sins, in need of spiritual resurrection, separated from our life in God, in need of reconnection, reconciliation. It's exactly what God came down to do. So he acted. The Son of God takes on flesh and blood so he could die in our place to take the death we deserve, to make atonement for our sins so we could be reconciled and reconnected to God. So in the place of our self-sufficiency and our selfish ambition, he gives us grace so that we could know the sufficiency of his grace and live for his glory and not our own just as we were made to live. So Acts 2, he comes down and he acts again. Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven, coming down and acting again, a sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the apostles, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were astonished and amazed, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And you get all these places they're from all over the world. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, it means that God came down again and acted by his mighty spirit. He reversed the confusion and made them all understand, and the church was born. So now this new people of God is one unified and even though we speak many tongues and, and languages, we all speak the same language. We all understand the language of grace and of the gospel. So Ephesians 4 says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the reversal of Babel leads to the birth of the church and the mission among the nations. Make disciples of all nations because I haven't given up my original intention. 
I am going to make sure that the earth is filled with the knowledge of my glory like the waters cover the sea. And it's going to happen one day, folks. It's really going to happen. Revelation 7 is going to happen. This is going to be our lived experience. I love these verses. Listen to this. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, all singing the same song. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there is this unity, this reversal that takes place in this unity that's going to be beautiful. So do you see how Babel is just begging for a solution? And it points to the solution that comes when Jesus comes and then the Spirit is sent and the mission goes out because God's going to reverse all of this and make us one in him with our total focus on his glory and not our own. We don't want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make his name great, right? Anybody want to make his name great? (laughs) Okay. So just a few concluding thoughts of application here. Yeah, thanks, Barry. Amen. We need to be all about the glory of God. So a few thoughts here. First, We all, I think, need to make war with our inclinations, our natural inclinations towards self-sufficiency. Toward finding our security and our sufficiency in things that are not God. So we need to fight for dependence and reliance on grace. God's grace is sufficient for us. We were made to run on God, not independent of him. Like Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We're totally helpless apart from him. We will produce nothing of eternal value apart from abiding in Christ. So we've really got to just put the crosshairs on our inclination to live independent, self-sufficient lives. Like, how often do you wake up in the morning and think you don't have time to read the Word and pray? No, I've got to keep driving. I can't fill my tank up with gas. I can just keep driving forever. No, that's insane. Well, yeah, it's insane. (laughs) Let's not be insane. Let's actually depend on the Lord and operate in His strength. There's so much grace for us to actually live. So two, we need to humbly follow God's path to greatness, not the world's path. Okay, do you remember? Look, look back in Genesis 11. In verse 4, they were taking matters into their own hands. They were trying to make a name for themselves, right? Well, do you know what happens at the beginning of the next chapter is God says to Abram, hey, I'm going to make a new people through you. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. Trust me. So do you see the contrast there? They tried to make a name for themselves. God says, 
I am going to make your name great, but you've got to trust me. Let me do it. Don't take matters into your own hands. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you are a blessing, living for the good of others, not for your own name, but for my name's sake and the good of others. So it's just the way that Jesus lived. It's what he called his disciples to embrace. Do you remember there's this amazing section in, in Mark 9 and 10. So he had told them of his suffering and death. They didn't really understand. They were afraid to ask. And they get into this argument, you know. The disciples end up forgetting about that, and they're talking about which of them is the greatest. So he sits the disciples down, Mark 9, 35, and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The next chapter, again, he's predicting his suffering and death. And what did James and John do? They're like, hey, teacher, we've got a request for you. Could you, you know, do what we ask? We'd like to sit at your right and left hand, like the positions of power in your glory. <laughs> and the other disciples are indignant, not because, oh, that's so unspiritual. No, we should have gotten in there first. Like, shotgun, I called it. So Jesus responds and says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones, worldly great ones, exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be great among you, it's okay to be ambitious, but trust me and follow me. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Trust me. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when you and I, if we live like Babel, we are buying the world's values and seeking the world's greatness, moving up the ladder and not wanting anyone else to get ahead of us. We're, gonna, we're not going to step down for anyone. But listen, when we trust God, who by his grace came down to serve and to save us, we, we get secure in his grace. And we don't have anything to prove anymore. So we are freed to follow Jesus down the ladder. We don't have to go up the ladder. We can actually go down the ladder to serve the least of these. Let's get ambitious for that, ambitious for humility. How about that? So can you see how this all hangs together? Last kind of applicational point. This humble, grace-saturated heart that realizes that God came down to save us. We don't have to try to get up a ladder to impress him or, or, you know, make a way for ourselves. When we know that his grace is sufficient, when we are secure in his gospel grace, that humble, grace-saturated heart will live for the glory of God's name. 
not for my name. I mean, isn't it so easy to care more what people think of me, of you, than they think of Jesus? We do that all the time. It's why we don't speak up and tell anybody about Jesus, because we care more about our name than his. Like, don't you want to be freed from that? Don't you want to care more about what people think of Jesus than what they think of you? That's freedom. So we get God's grace. It's sufficient. It secures our souls. We're satisfied in him. And we know who we are. We don't have anything to prove. No ladders anymore. And our motives get purified. And we're going to live for God's name alone. We can just pour contempt on our pride and live with a pure and holy passion for the name of Christ, for him to be made famous. So each of us needs to ask, how can I be passionate? Like, don't you want purity of heart, like pure motives? Don't you, aren't you aware of how a mess and how mixed your motives are so often? Don't you want them to be purified? Let's pray for this. Let's seek, like, I want the name of Jesus to be exalted in my sphere of influence. I want to be all about, just passion about the, the glory of Christ. And then we as a church need to ask and pray, how can we make a name for God in Wilmington? Anybody going to join me praying for that? Can we pray, Lord, how can we make a name for you here? How can we see the name of Jesus exalted in our city? So, scripture reading for this morning was Psalm 115, right? So I hope there are some amens to this statement at the beginning of the psalm. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love Amen. and faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to close here in just a minute singing a, a song that's fitting. It's we're singing to each other. We're calling to each other as the church to rise up and live as the people of the risen King, living for his glory alone. So let's pray, and then we'll sing that together. <clears throat> Father, we confess that we so often and, and so easily live for our glory and not yours. We want to make a name for ourselves and not make your name great. And I pray that you would free us from this. Pray that you would give us grace to repent, to see it where it is, see our mixed motives, our, our selfishly ambitious motives, and just to deny that, put it to death on a daily basis and fix our eyes on you and long for your name to be great. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we would do it to your glory, that that would be our one thing, our one driving, overwhelming, wholehearted, single-minded passion and desire, that your name would be hallowed and your kingdom would come, and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need so much grace and help for that, and we thank you that you are so gracious and willing 
to help us, to equip us, to strengthen us, even to forgive and cleanse us of our, of our double-mindedness and our mixed motives. So thank you for how Tower of Babel just begs for a solution, and thank you that the solution has been given. And I pray that we would trust Jesus and know his grace in such a way that we are secure down to our core and made passionate for your glory down to the core. It would just be what gets us up in the morning, just be our our driving passion. And we pray that you would use us. ordinary, very ordinary, painfully ordinary people like me and all of us in this room to make a name for yourself here in Wilmington, in our extended family, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, in every sphere of influence that you give us. Help us to shine with your light and point people to you and not care what they think of us, but care deeply what they think of you. Please do it for the sake of your name. And in Jesus' name, amen.